Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. I am not entirely convinced that they could not have figured out a way to use the ring to help Gondor and then destroy it. Steven, so that's, more that's, Mary doesn't get enough love. I agree with you, Stephen, but that's what happened. Isildur? That's exactly Isildur. what he thought he was going to do. That he was going to help his people rebuild and defeat the last remnants of the Shadow, and then it corrupted him. We've got an eminent threat here. Let's just use use the ring, do a few like blasts of power or whatever, this is and Isildur. defeat the threat, and then throw it. Away. Yeah, I, I, know, I, I know. Okay, okay. Like maybe we could have figured something out. And I liked Boromir, and he's cool. And I feel like Sean Bean shouldn't be killed off as much as he is. <laughs> What's up, Hobbits? This is Phantology. We are covering Lord of the Rings. About time we are excited to get to the granddaddy series of them all when it comes to fantasy books. This is what we owe so much to. And Ben and Josh are on with me, Stephen, to discuss book one, Fellowship of the Ring. So what's up, guys? What did you think of the book version? I know we're all very familiar with the movie as are a lot of our listeners, but I imagine some people may be rusty on the book or maybe have not even read it yet, ever. So what were you guys' impressions? So this was my first time listening to it. I've read it two other times, I believe. And I really enjoyed coming back to it, especially after having um, read a lot more in fantasy. The other two times I had read it, I I wasn't nearly as well-versed in fantasy. But this time I felt like I could really come back and see like, oh, yeah, this trope really did carry on to all these other series. And so I really enjoyed coming back to it for that reason. So it sounds like Josh has read a few times. I have read the series once before, but it was probably in my formative teen years, which were a few years ago nowadays. And uh, Ben, had you read the series before? Is this your first time through? This is my first time through. So I had read The Hobbit before and I just never never picked this one up. I don't know. I, I'll have a lot to say later on, but first time through. Okay. sounds like Ben has some hot takes ready for us. <laughs> oh, so no. we're looking forward to those as we always do with Ben's hot takes. So if you like what Phantology is doing, check us out on social media at Phantology Books on our website, www.phantologybooks.com. We have a merch store now. So if you really want to brand whatever gear from face masks to baby onesies, whatever you're wearing, these days, hey, either are acceptable in these COVID times. You can brand those with our nice Phantology logo from Mark Wells, our artist. And what else? You can talk with us on Discord and check out our Patreons. There's a lot of different ways to engage with Phantology, and we're excited to do that with you. And make sure to vote. Right now we have um, our current poll is top three settings. And I believe a lot of people chose Lord of the Rings or Middle Earth in general for their for their top three settings. So we have a poll going almost every day um, and we try and do one of these bracket things every month. So if you haven't, if you didn't get in in July, make sure you hit up the August one. Yeah, and thanks to Patreon support, we are now able to provide prizes for the winners. So hop on our on our polls and get your submissions in for August if you haven't in July. And there'll be some Phantology swag coming your way if you can win a Twitter poll, which is tough to do. And if anybody's on the um, fence about becoming a Patreon supporter, just know that all the money we get from this goes right back into the podcast. Like we all work full-time jobs. This isn't, you know, we're not like taking a profit from this. We're putting it back into like giving a prize for the poll winner or paying our hosting fee or stuff like that. So it's going to a good place. It's going for the podcast. Also, I will say, going back to winning the poll, our our champion last time, Black Tower Podcast, was actually eliminated first round this time by half blood radio so you never know you know you could you could win one round and then get eliminated next round first i personally came in second place last time i was very disappointed by that so let me tie that back into into the lord of the rings and say that anyone can win just like a small hobbit going through middle earth can provide a huge difference in a world that is dominated by large frightening creatures of all sorts that are all that all overmatch hobbits look you still have a chance so try that out on the poll as well so rolling that right into the fellowship of the ring book one lord of the rings tolkien this was published back in the 
what I mean, he was writing it in the 30s. He wrote these for it. He took a long time to write these. And I think there are some differing. Uh, I, I've read some different things on what the publishing plan actually was, but he actually planned on writing this in six installments, six different books. So each of these two books are really two of his preferred, the, the way he would have preferred to publish it. And I can already tell as I start to talk about this, that the Patreon video where I go back and correct the mistakes we made is going to be a doozy because there are so many details around Lord of the Rings that we are probably going to mess up. <laughs> and that people will call us out on when we mess them up. <laughs> so one thing that I was most surprised on is that he wrote The Hobbit well before Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I have the date, I have the publication dates pulled up, and I think it was like 20 years. I think it was 1937 to 1954 between the Were the Hobbit course and... of, oh, were the differences between? Yeah. But I think he was like trying to publish, I mean, publishing was way different back then. So I don't know if we can compare that too well to how things roll out today. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess in my mind, my simple hobbit mind because the movies for the hobbit came out after the movies for the lord of the rings trilogy then that means that he should have written the hobbit afterwards as well but that is not the case oh i can already tell that you are going to get roasted after this is over <laughs> to compare to make a claim like that and compare it on the, to the movies especially the hobbit movies that is not going to go over well with fans <laughs> hey i'm just being honest i guess also because the Hobbit is just kind of almost like a novella compared to these. You know, it just didn't kind of seem like, oh, here's a cool like afterthought to the book. Or like, you know, he, he had hinted in the book and then maybe people wanted more. I don't know. In my mind, that's how it happened. So I'm having a hard time changing it around. I think that's fair. I think you could say that either publication order would have made sense based off of the text of the books themselves. I mean, maybe if you go into the real lore of the Tolkien Legendarium, which is the name given to like all of Tolkien's works and, and the entirety of the Middle Earth world, then maybe it doesn't make quite as much sense. But I, I see what you I see what you mean from just reading through that before or after would have made sense as like a, a postscript or as a as a prelude. And I can see where you're coming from, Ben, because without the context that the Lord of the Rings provides, the Hobbit doesn't really seem to make to be, be that big of a deal. You know, like it's a cool story and I like it. It's not anything bad about The Hobbit, but like it doesn't seem like it really matters without like the rest of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, the story seems very inconsequential because it's really just this ring that was kind of a bit of a plot device in The Hobbit. And then this is the big thing going forward into the next series. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's get into it. How, so how does this book start, Stephen? Yeah. So typically I just kind of walk through the plot. I'll do that to some extent, but I think we're all pretty familiar with the events of Lord of the Rings. So I don't think we're too worried about providing spoilers. So a few things that I kind of wanted to touch on, you guys kind of jump in with with some things that stuck out to you. So right away, you notice as the book starts, that this book is very different than modern day fantasies, because it's written in a third person omniscient point of view, which for those of you who don't remember your middle school to grade school points of view in English class, this means that the narrator basically knows everything about what every character is thinking and saying. Modern fantasy that we see today is almost entirely third-person limited, which means the current point of view character, we see the scope of what they are thinking and feeling, but we don't but we don't know what the other characters feel about them or or what the other characters are feeling or thinking in general. But Tolkien very much kind of takes you from character to character, and although this book mostly follows Frodo, at any given time, all of a sudden, it could be like, oh, and then Aragorn said, and he was thinking, and then Gandalf was thinking, and then, oh, they didn't realize that the ring really meant this. Like, he's just giving you all of these different things kind of coming at you from all sides. And that is very interesting. As someone who is really into the modern fantasy, and, and I've read a lot of that, to jump back to those roots was a bit jarring, I would say, right off the bat. Yeah, I'd say that the big uh, move for not even like epic fantasy, but for YA fantasy is to become more and more focused on character and like provide a more and more limited point of view. Even if it changes to like first person point of view, it's still just punching more and more in on the character instead of widening out and being more omniscient. I will say that there are some authors that like to break that trend. For instance, Stephen King provides a lot of foreshadowing in his books where like it'll just provide pretty much like a spoiler for the rest of the book. Like, oh, and this is the last time you'll hear of this person because they die in like a few weeks. So I think that there are some authors that have taken that 
omniscient trend and applied it to their works. But you're right. It's still, it's still jarring when you, when you go jump back into it. But we're going to try to not be unfairly critical of the book because you really have to recognize when you talk about Lord of the Rings, you've got to look at it through a historical lens. Like so much of the books, so much of the things that we love about more contemporary fantasy books comes from the groundwork that Lord of the Rings set. And like Wheel of Time, for example, built so much, so much off of a lot of these plot elements of Lord of the Rings so much. So the beginning of Wheel of Time is basically Robert Jordan's tribute to Tolkien and and the setup that you you have in the fellowship. So sure, this is third person omniscient, but that's okay. That's just a different way to experience the story. Yeah, totally. And what I thought while I was reading this is how much this still stands up. Yes, there are some things that are kind of dated, like the point of view, but overall, how how much I still enjoyed it and how much it still really is, you know, in some ways, leaps and bounds ahead of anything else that's out there, really. For instance, it's still really flowery with how it describes things, but it doesn't go on for pages and pages and pages describing like random things, but it's still really pretty and provides wonderful descriptions and paints a really great world. So here's my question that kept on coming into mind as, as I've been reading through the series again, is what would my perspective on the books be if I hadn't ever experienced the movies? And I don't know if any of us can answer that question because we have watched the movies many times growing up, and it's impossible to separate what's being described on the pages to what we've seen on screen in movies. And in a lot of ways, I think at least for me, it's a lot easier to get attached to something I'm visually seeing. It's harder to build up something on the page. So do you guys have any possible takes on what the answer to that question might be, understanding that it's basically an impossible question to answer? All I can say is that I think that the movies made me enjoy the books a lot more than I think I would have otherwise. I mean, I was able to, from the get-go, picture everything super well, and that had to do with the movies. So I don't know, except for to say that most of the enjoyment I got from this read-through was because of the movies, I think. Okay, that might be the first of many hot takes from Ben. (laughs) So the first time I read through the series was around when The Return of the King was coming out. I read through them when I was like 11 and Return of the King came out when I was 11. So I don't know if I had finished the series before The Return of the King came out or when like after it came out, but it was right around then. And I just remember still being really enthralled in the world, even if I, and I don't know if that was because of the movies or not. So when we talk about this actual storyline of the book, it's very similar to the movies. There are some differences, which we'll kind of touch on, but look, the book begins in the Shire with the Hobbit named Frodo and Bilbo and Bilbo's got the ring and Bilbo is getting old and has this birthday party and drops off the ring with Frodo. There is this encounter with Gandalf who then proceeds to explain to Frodo what is going on with this ring, etc. And the journey kind of begins from there. So in this opening sequence, what did you guys think of it? What were some differences that stood out to you between book and movie? And did you like them? Yeah, I think one difference between book and movie is how long Frodo just stays and hangs out in the Shire and how you really get the sense that he's like almost entrenched in the Shire. You know, he has a lot of relationships. He is kind of seen as like the eccentric person in the Shire, but it feels like that's really his home. Whereas in the movies, I think he's made out to just be somebody that just can't kind of wait to get out of the Shire and start his adventure. Whereas I don't really get that feel from the books. Like he's kind of delaying going on the mission and the books he doesn't really want to go but he knows he has to and i really like that because i think it it makes his journey more compelling of being a little bit more needing a kick in the pants to get out of the shire yeah i i agree with that i i was gonna say though i think that frodo and his relation to the ring was super interesting in the way that they portrayed it in the book and the way that they were able to portray that in the movie like in the book it makes it very clear that he had some type of subconscious like attraction to the ring that he kind of knew on the surface but he also like couldn't figure out why he was feeling this way but then in the movies it almost if i remember the scene right like he almost like growled at gandalf or like lunged toward him or you know it was just like this very like visceral physical uh, reaction that happened when he had to give up the ring 
I feel like in the book it was more of this mental kind of foggy haze, whereas the movie it was this visceral physical reaction. So it sounds like you guys are saying Frodo is a little different than the way he was portrayed in the movies. And Josh, your point was that Frodo seems like it seems like in the movies they're trying to get you to believe that Frodo is this outcast. He's fundamentally different from the other hobbits and can't wait to leave. But in the books, you're like, wait, no, that's not really true. He's just another hobbit that's been called on this adventure and he resists and he resists and, re- and he resists for, all, for a long time. And then finally accepts, I mean, it's like years, I think 17 years at least from yeah. the time that Gandalf comes the first time to when he comes again and says, okay, like now it's seriously time to get out of here. And he, he just seemed like a lot younger and ready to go on adventure in the books. You know, it, it was more of like a farm boy kind of type feeling in the, I mean, I'm sorry, in the movies, it felt like a farm boy being called on an action to adventure when he was like a young kid. Whereas in the books, he seems just more mature, more ready to go and less less like it just fell in his lap and i think the first book is great one of the things that i liked about it was frodo's narrative from beginning to end so at the beginning he is very much a passive protagonist meaning that things are happening to him and he is therefore reacting so gandalf comes and says frodo you got to do this frodo says all right fine i'll go and they run away and then you know the, the ring race come after them and on the action goes from there, and then Aragorn Strider comes and says, "Okay, we got to do this." And Frodo's just kind of dragged along, dragged along, dragged along. And you're like, Frodo, you know, you're kind of a wimp. What are you even doing here? And I understand you're carrying the ring, and that's important. But like, really, how cool are you? But by the end of the book, when I think the big moment for him is when he leaves the Fellowship and he goes off on the boat. He's ready to do this all on his own because he knows he understands he has this vital mission that cannot be compromised. And the fellowship is falling apart. Boromir is trying to take the ring from him. And so he says, I got to do this on my own because I am now the real protagonist. I'm not a passive dude anymore. And I'm going to go do it. Luckily, Sam joins up with him or he would have failed spectacularly. But the story of Frodo's journey from beginning to end of this book, I think is one of the things that I appreciated much more after reading the book versus seeing the movie. That's interesting. I think, yeah, I think that that also might be because you're in Frodo's head a lot more. I guess in the in the book than you are in the movie, so it's easier to see kind of that progression. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. One thing I will say is that the best part about Frodo is his willingness to trust other people and allow them to help him on his journey. And some might say that's, you know, a flaw of his too, like with Gollum. But especially in this first book, he trusts Strider, he trusts Gandalf, he trusts Sam and Merry and Pippin. And not only does he trust them, but he allows their best parts of who they are to like assist him in his journey. Yeah, I, I like that. So what do you guys think about the fact that Sam and Mary are foils to Frodo and the fact that like whatever they say, Frodo kind of sits back and thinks about it and decides the exact opposite, especially with Sam a lot. I feel like whenever Sam speaks, you're like, well, Frodo's going to say the exact opposite in the next paragraph. So you think that's the case with all the Hobbits? Well, to me, Merry and Pippin are kind of interchangeable, just comic relief. Okay, sure. Pippin's always getting in trouble. That's his ammo. Yeah, but really the people that, other Hobbit that progresses the plot along is Sam, right? Yeah, that, that is interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about that before, but a lot of times you do see Sam kind of offering advice or saying like, you know, Frodo, let's kind of do this. And you see that more in, I think, the second and third books where they're really setting off on their adventure and, Sam has some opinions, but is shot down pretty quickly by Frodo and always defers to Frodo. And honestly, that's a little bit annoying because Sam is the real hero of Lord of the Rings. Fight me. (laughs) Yeah, I think that might become that might come from a little bit of a place where Tolkien was trying to write a little bit of conflict into these interactions between characters. I feel like that is one way that authors have done a much better job is inner character conflict. You know, I think that most of the conflict in Lord of the Rings came from like man versus nature and like man versus what's the other like. Sure. Just different conflicts. I mean, you have yeah, like yeah. man versus man or versus nature or versus like ideologies. Right, right, right. So I feel like in Fellowship, a lot of it was man versus nature, like especially when they're starting out, like when they get trapped in the forest with, I'm jumping a little ahead, but when they get trapped in the forest, but also there's. There's the ring race that are chasing after them, but there's not very much like interpersonal conflict 
between the characters that's really substantial. I feel like that's something that modern fantasy authors have gotten a lot better at is like having these dialogues and communications that uh, portray the conflict between characters a lot better. Yeah, that's true. Because even when they're fighting against the ring rates or fighting against the orcs or the goblins or the Balrog, even those don't really seem like other characters in the sense that they have feelings and a MO of their own. These are really just like natural forces, forces of Sauron that are sent to destroy them. And so they might as well just be the waves of the sea. Well, and even when Gandalf goes and confronts Saruman and he's telling them the story about how he learned that Saruman was like a traitor and had fallen to the influence um, of the shadow, you don't really get like this huge confrontation of the two characters and like them telling each other why they're wrong. Like you get that a little bit, but there's not a ton of time spent between these characters on why the one's wrong and one's right. It's just like, okay, there's like a conflict. Yeah, he trapped me on the tower because he had fallen prey to the shadow, you know? And like, so you can build this up in your mind and especially the movies kind of help with that, but you don't really get that in the book and you don't get a ton of time spent. You're just more left to imagine those interactions. I was going to say also, it seems like the only motivation for evil is power in this book. Like Sauron or anybody is just, I want the ring to be more powerful. Boromir, like, they all think that they're going to do the right thing for it, but everybody knows that they're not. So it's just like you need some more motivation for for the villains. Well, I, I kind of disagree because I, one thing I really liked about the books um, more than the movies is in the Council of Elrond, they spend a lot more time talking about why the ring actually needs to be destroyed. And I think I talked about this in, in our chat about it is like in the movies, it's just kind of a foregone conclusion. The ring needs to be destroyed. So let's figure out how to get it so that we can destroy it. In the book, it's like, Boromir kind of says, no, we don't. Why should we destroy this ring? My my people have been defending from the shadow. We've been defending the realms of men from all these people. And we we could use the ring to like shore up our defenses. And he makes a case for that. And it's a compelling case. And it's not till like Gandalf comes in and says, no, this corrupt, this can corrupt anyone that they kind of decide that they need to destroy the ring. And I I thought that was a compelling scene. And I don't think it is just like as black and white as it was made out to be in the in the movie. Yeah, my I really like that, Josh. My hot take before I learned more about how the ring actually worked, because that was one thing I was a little confused about in the books. is like, okay, we got the ring. What can the ring actually do? It can make you invisible, and it can make Sauron see you. And that's about all I understand. But I mean, obviously, there is a lot more. But up until the point where I learned what those things were, I was thinking, man, Boromir, let's give him a shot here. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have worked out, but could, can we let him try? Because it sure seems like maybe the ring would be helpful in this in this terrible situation that the men are in. Right. I, I kind of picture this like in real time with them defending the blight, you know, like how cool it would have been if they could have like the power to actually like, fight back against the blight. And sorry for the mild wheel of time spoilers. Yeah. So what is it that the ring, Josh, since you seem to be our expert, like, why Why was it that Boromir would not have been able to take up the ring? How, how would it have corrupted him? Or, like, why was Frodo able to carry it? I, I'm not sure exactly on all the lore. I think the more powerful you are, the easier it is for the ring to corrupt you. Right. That's my understanding as well. I was I was hoping you'd go there. So, like, hobbits are probably, like, the, the least powerful. So they can hold the ring because they don't have a whole lot of power that can be used. But when you get up to men, and then especially when you get up to, like, Gandalf level that's way bad if they were to take the ring because they'd yeah, be instantly taken over i mean gandalf actually says that right when they're in the shire having that conversation frodo's like well why don't you just take it and he's like i don't trust myself basically i i can't take it and and you, as we see it can even corrupt you know it can corrupt hobbits it can corrupt anyone and i think yeah it's the power that's corrupting them but it's also i think they um see themselves as being able to bind the world and bind all the other rings and bind all power and so that they can use it for good. And I think that really um, is the corrupting influence, not just the power. Which is obviously what happened to the men who had the rings back in the day and are now the ring race. These guys thought they could handle it and were shut down pretty quickly and now are just servants of Sauron. So question, do the other rings corrupt as well? Is that how the ring waves got corrupted? Or because like obviously the elves have figured out how to handle the rings and, and make productive things out of them so is it just the one ring that corrupts or is it all the rings that corrupt that is a good question 
I mean, the inscription of the ring is one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. So all these rings were uh, made to give power to each of these different species or races, but there was the one ring that was made to bind them all. And so I think that, that that's how they became ring rights is because they had the power given to them from the rings that were made for, made for men, but they were bound to the one ring. And that's, that's how they became ring rights. And I'm sure that this is not very deep into the lore, so I'm so sure people have additional thoughts about that, but that's my base level understanding. Yeah, we'll have to look this up, maybe look for some more details on Patreon. But I mean, my guess is this could be way wrong. So let us know in Discord how far we're off here. But my guess is like maybe elves are more powerful. So they knew what to do a little more to protect themselves or given enough time. Maybe they would have been corrupted as well. But the men were just very fallible and fell to it right away. Well, just a hypothesis. The, the other thing is Elrond talks about that, I think why the elves were able to kind of distance themselves from it. And that's, yeah, I think it was at the council of Elrond when um, I think it was Boromir. One of them asked, well, why don't we just use the other rings to assist us? And he's like, no, we can't do that because I think the way that they were using them was just to create and uh, build like their, their little world, but not to go out and destroy or something like that. Mm, That's fair. Okay. You do see Elrond use his ring when he raises the river to save Frodo and, and the party from the ring race. Yeah. yeah that's that's a notable difference from the movie where we have Arwen who mutters the spell under her breath and causes the, the river to rise up. So one character that I want to talk about, and this is kind of pivoting to another thing that was not in the movies. Can you guys guess who I'm going to say? Yeah, you're talking about Tom B. Yeah. Yeah, and I've I've heard that this is um, Tolkien's favorite character that he wrote. So I guess, why do you think they didn't include him in the movie? Did you like him in the book? What purpose did he serve? So he's Tolkien's favorite character, maybe kind of in the same vein that Hoyt is Sanderson's favorite character? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess. Like there are these that. kind of powerful enigmas that are popping up in the story, and they can do some cool things, but we're, as a reader, we're not real sure exactly what's going on. Right. So I, I have mixed feelings about Tom um, Bombadil. On one hand, I spent I went down like a rabbit hole for like half an hour reading all about him and about like his origins and kind of got into the legendarium a little bit just because I was so fascinated by him. On another hand, I didn't really like how he was used as a dose ex machina twice. You know, once to free was it Mary or Pippin that got stuck in the tree? Free. They were all being taken down by that tree, man. Yeah. Yeah. So he came in and saved them from that. And then once again, he came in and saved them from the. From the Barrowites. Yeah. 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 Tolkien really loves the Deus Ex Machina. And I mean, the hot take maybe to come late in later episodes, but the Eagles overrated in my opinion. <laughs> so, so focusing back on Tom, like I didn't really like how he was used as a plot device tr- twice in the same way, but I, I really did like how. In Middle Earth, there's just this guy that is basically the personification of nature almost, just hanging out, tending to his own little realm there, and has avoided becoming entwined with the things of the world, and pops the ring on, and literally it has no influence on him. So that goes to show that he's like probably more powerful than Sauron, and he's just hanging out there. So is that the case in your uh, rabbit hole excursion there did you discover kind of what was going on with tom why he was able to do that well there's there's a lot of theories about it but basically he was there like before he theorized that he might have been like the first living thing on middle earth and that he saw everything develop and that he's basically just almost a force of nature rather than like a being and so that's why the ring really had no influence on him so do you think that this was in my mind it was kind of compared to the end of the first book of the wheel of time. I don't want to get too into spoilers here, but like you also kind of have this naturey force thingy that helps them save the day a little bit. Can you guys think back about what I'm referring to there? Yeah. I, th- I think I know what you're talking about, but yeah, we don't want to do spoilers. Yeah. So I, I feel like that was also kind of Jordan's way of referencing Tom Bombadil. I kind of like that. That's what I was thinking about when I was reading all about his character. Yeah, lots of crossovers between Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings. If you haven't read Wheel of Time, know that the beginning, the first several chapters of Wheel of Time is basically the entirety of the first book of The Fellowship of the Ring. It's divided into two books. So 
the first book when the hobbits are wandering around in the Shire and running around or running away from ring wraiths and encountering different obstacles. Like that is essentially what's going on at the beginning of wheel of time. And it's meant to be because Robert Jordan is essentially saying like, thank you Tolkien for establishing this. Here is my take on it. And then here we go from there with a new story. Yeah. So I like the character. What about one thing that I really appreciated was how well the, the minds of, Oh, Josh, you probably know the name. The minds that they got stuck in were developed. Minds of Moria? Yeah. Those are really cool. Dude, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, man. The Minds of Moria. Come on, dude. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Minds of Moria, probably. Where the hobbits are from, like the higher fire. <laughs> yeah. No. Hobbits definitely not from Minds of Moria. Minds of Moria is the name of the mountain pass that they go to. Uh, to, to to get through, to get down and kind of into the land southward. And this was far none the best part of the Fellowship of the Ring for me, in my opinion. Okay. The setting the setting was fantastic. Uh, just the, the feel, the eerie feel of being in the mines, how quiet it was when the, when the goblins and the orcs started coming after them, how chilling and scary, frankly scary that was because they were coming after them. And they're reading this book that was detailing basically the same exact situation that it had happened in years prior to the to the previous dwarf colony that was there and then the 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 running away the fighting brief fighting with the orcs the whole scene with the balrog and then gandalf's show off moment that was all fantastic and just blew the rest of the book away in my opinion yeah when i was listening to it i was like okay this is where it stopped being like a black and white cheesy movie to me that i was being forced to watch and started being an action-packed Avengers type situation. So I, I agree with you, Stephen. That was a that was an awesome part for me. I mean, I will say, look, if you're looking for action, Lord of the Rings is not known. It's it's not there for the action. Tolkien doesn't describe the action blow by blow like a lot of these modern fantasy authors do. It's more of just kind of like, here's what happened, and reader, you in your mind try to uh, you know imagine and piece together what maybe some of the smaller events were. But yeah, the Minds of Moria maybe more so in terms of you actually saw events unfolding. Yeah, like when again I can't remember if it's Mary or Pippin, but when they drop the when they drop the rock down the cavern or down the pit thing just to see how deep it is, you know, like typical a typical Hobbit would do. And then yeah. Gandalf is like, "You fool! Like, what have you done? You know, you've just like basically told everyone we're here." You're just like, "Holy crap! What what's going to happen?" The other thing is, I remember when I was a kid being a lot more afraid of that squid thing that came up and caught Frodo by the oh the, the watcher leg. yeah like i remember being freaked out about that the first time i read it but like this time it was over so fast i i had kind of built that up as bigger than it was in my mind dude all i know is that if you read the the riddle on how to get into the minds of more moria moria come on moria man. <laughs> anyway that right, riddle the riddle <laughs> like speak friend and enter right if you read that you would be able to answer 99.9% of these Facebook riddles that have been popping up. What are these what are these Facebook riddles? Every oh, one of my friends, every one of my friends have been posting like just some riddle where the answer is in the sentence itself, you know? Yeah, where you're expecting a comma but there isn't one, so that tells you the answer. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. But I thought it was cool that this was like the originator of all of those. Man, you guys have a lot of uh, extra time on your hands with Facebook riddles. Uh, Josh, it was Pippin who is the one that dropped the rock in the well, which Thanks was foreshadowed that, nicely when Boromir threw the rock into the lake where the watcher in the water was. So those kind of tied in together in the movie. I think I, I assume it was Pippin as well. I can't remember what happens in the movie, but I think he actually accidentally like knocks over a dead orc or, or something into the well. Yeah. So not quite as stupid, but still a way bad move for him. <laughs> Dude, hobbits are all screwing stuff up in the in the these books. They do well to advance the plot along, though. I mean, imagine how easy this would have been without the hobbits. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But also, how impossible it would have been. So, yeah, the 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 mines are awesome. Um, one thing when Gandalf goes to fight the Balrog, there is a change that caught my attention that was really small, but I thought kind of interesting that also kind of spoke to some of the larger changes between the book and the movie. So in the movie, Gandalf, of course, says, you shall not pass. And it's very dramatic. And he, he smites his staff down on the bridge, the stone bridge, and it breaks. 
By the way, how cool is that bridge? So awesome, right? And in the books, he says you cannot pass. So slight wording change. But the difference, in my opinion, is that you shall not pass. It's like a command. Like, Balrog, you cannot go here because I am restricting you from doing so. Like a power challenge of sorts. In the in the books, when he says you cannot pass, is more of a statement, like a statement of law of like, look, this is the case that I am stronger than you and you cannot pass here. And as soon as Gandalf says that, you kind of get the sense of really how powerful he is. And the Balrog immediately shrinks back and is unable to challenge him further. And that kind of speaks to the depth that the books are built out in, in terms of like, all these people do have different power levels. And if you really read into the Legendarium, you know what those things are. But in the movie, they're more of like direct challenges and fighting. So like in the movie, you could be like, yeah, sure, the Balrog, you know, he might have been able to take Gandalf. But in the books, you're like, no way, there's no way he ever had a chance because of their status in the world. That's a really cool thought, Stephen. The, the other thing I thought that was really cool about the scene, and I'm giving props to the movie on this, is just how how awesome a director can make like a scene. I feel like in the books, that was a really cool scene, but it wasn't as like epic, like just reading it. Well, I guess I noticed it this time because hearing it read, like the the narrator, while well, I think that he did a good job reading these books, he didn't like scream it like, you know, Gandalf does in the movie of like just this epic resonating command. He just kind of says it normally. I'm like, and in my head, I was like, this is so cool that a director, this is all they have, but they built it up into one of the most memorable scenes in like, I would argue cinematic history. Like if you've seen that movie, you remember that scene no matter what. And it just came from a few sentences in the book that weren't really that epic to initially read. I mean, it doesn't help that they had one of the most awesome epic scores in cinematic history to add into the movie and this amazing setting. But yeah, I mean, amazing job by Peter Jackson. Yeah. So so I'm curious how you would compare the Minds of Moria to... Come, come on, man. You're trying now. You're trying. How you compare the Minds of Moria to what's the where do all the kind of higher level elves live that they that they get introduced to? Gladriel's people. Yeah, Mirkwood. Is that Mirkwood? No, Mirkwood no, no, no. is the Sorry. northern is Sorry, northern yeah, yeah, yeah. elves. Okay, so wait, where is that place called? It's kind of like a place outside of time, almost. I mean, that they kind of get led into. And in the movie, it's kind of cool because they shoot with like a filter almost of like this dreamlike place, kind of. But so those were kind of like two completely opposite settings that were, you know, one's dark down in the middle of the earth, you know, and this is more like light in the trees. You have this sense of magic that is always kind of happening there. So to me, it was cool to see those two vastly different settings kind of propped up right next to each other. Yeah, this is, of course, Lothlorien. I always knew that. I just wanted to have you stumble through it. I, I didn't see you looking down at your at your phone when we were on Zoom at all. Definitely not. So yeah, Lothlorien. And like you say, I, yeah, I think it's a really nice contrast. And they immediately go there afterwards and are kind of uh, you know healed of their wounds a bit, have some time to, uh, to recuperate. But it also adds to the world because you have the mirror scene with Galadriel, Galadriel and you also get a sense of, okay, she can't take the ring either. And what would happen if she were to, and then she gives them some gifts and they, and they continue on their way. So it's, it's a nice, uh, she kind of takes the place of Gandalf for, for a bit, I would say. So you kind of skipped over what might've been my favorite scene rereading this book, but this is when Gimli was asking for a gift and he, and she was like, you know, just, just tell me what you want. And he was like, well, it would be the world if I could just have like a piece of a string of your hair to like remind me of your amazingness basically she acquiesced right and everyone was shocked because this was such an amazing gift and to me it just showed how far Gimli came from like first camp distrusting the elves and especially when they were being led in there like he took such offense to being blindfolded and and then how he had been humbled so much to being like just even the smallest little gift from you or remembrance of your presence would mean the world to me and I just thought that was really beautiful yeah, I agree. I think that they like took those lines and built the whole character of Gimli in the movies based off of like those few like scenes in there. Like kind of this womanizing dwarf that that has a giant hateful but friendly relationship with elves. I don't know if I'd call him womanizing quite as much, 
but and, and there are more lines but yeah i, I like no, he pulls. i feel like the movies he, if he pulls in the movies that's that canon <laughs> all right <laughs> well I, I do think gimli's character is great in in the relationship with the dwarves and elves and i think tolkien is, is pretty far ahead of his time here when it comes to these very distinct races in middle earth that have been a conflict for millennia coming together in order to defeat this you know purely evil power and it's a really good cultural statement, frankly. Yeah, I agree. Sorry, the other part I really liked about that is how they diffuse the entire situation with with saying that, okay, we'll all put on the blindfolds. Because first they just wanted to blindfold Gimli. And then Legolas is like, well, if Gimli's going to wear a blindfold, then we're all going to wear blindfolds. Yeah, you know, totally to standing in solidarity with him. Yeah. So with the whole mirror thing, or like when they saw what they truly desired... Do you think that like the mirror of Harrisad in Harry Potter was like directly pulled from that? I mean, it's got to be strong. Look, that's not the first mirror we've seen either. Magic mirror from Snow White. But um, I, yeah, this idea of a magic mirror that Rowling put into the first book of Harry Potter, I would say, sure, probably taken directly from that. Look, nothing from Harry Potter is purely original. It's just the way that she crafted it all together. That made it such a great story. Yeah. And shout out to our other Harry Potter episodes, Stephen and crew does a, a good job of breaking those down. Yeah, Phantology has some of those too. Yeah, I think that the theme of like paying respect to these books, I, that's why I'm trying to like bring in all these other you know influences that that we see in other books to this. Yeah, th- thanks for doing that because I think that again we can't state that enough when we talk about Lord of the Rings. It may be a little bit different than what we're used to in 2020, but so much of the books that we have grown up and and, and really love are directly influenced by Lord of the Rings. One thing that mm, probably my least favorite part about the books was the songs, the freaking songs. <laughs> there are so many of them. And maybe it was just, maybe the audiobook is not a great way to take in the song. Whenever the narrator launched into the song, man, like it could not end soon enough. I 100% hated them. Did you skip them? Did you use the little fast forward 20 seconds? No, no, I, I, I couldn't skip. I mean, I was always kind of, it never really would have worked out to skip and I didn't want to go too far ahead, but I don't think I ever got anything out of them. If I was reading, I probably would have got a little more. And I know that some books are that, that Tolkien has written are entirely based off of some of these things, but I didn't get anything out of the songs. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, for sure. This stuff. Cause I could have told, like if I was reading it, I would have like, probably wanted to just like take one of those songs and keep on analyzing it. You know what I mean? And like, would be a fun thing to talk about just one of those songs, but in an audiobook format, when you're not like trying to dive deep into it, it's not, it's not ideal. One thing is, so my daughter like has been loving singing the like nursery rhyme of the cow jumping over the moon and the plate running away with the spoon. Did that originate in, in these books or was that like a thing before token came along? Cause it was so crazy. I'm like, if that is, if that is like the nursery rhyme that this originated from, that, that that's really impressive. No idea. No idea. But I like it. <laughs> <laughs> what about the not all not all who wander are lost, like that you see on every Pinterest board in the world? That's pretty cool that it came from Lord of the Rings. Like all these things that I'm reading, I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, is this the first time like that, that this is introduced, you know? You, you didn't know that's where that quote was from? <laughs> I, no, I did not know that. that <laughs> So in Ben's defense, I, I, I did know that that was from Lord of the Rings, but I had forgotten it applied to Aragorn. You know, yeah. like I forgot that it applied to him. And this is where I think his character kind of diverged from the movie character, the movie version to the book version. I thought that um, it was kind of significant. Yeah, I really want to talk about Aragorn because that there were some differences there. One thing real quick, as I was bashing on the songs, I thought of a good way to maybe justify them a little bit and come up with a modern comparison because the songs from Lord of the Rings, the songs from Lord of the Rings are the modern day version of the little epigraph things that you see at the beginning of Mm. chapters in some of these epic fantasies where it like really gets you deeper into the lore, maybe not as important for the book at hand, but it's like a paragraph or two. You're like, what the heck is this? But you don't care because you're into the next paragraph at the beginning of the next chapter right away. So that's my connection, and that's the way that I'm going to say the songs are still important, even though I didn't like them in this book. That's cool, Stephen. The other thing I wanted to point out that this would be a good time I wanted to talk about, like Ben was saying, not all who wander are lost. 
there some of the best quotes like that I haven't just seen on bumper stickers, but there are just such amazing little tidbits and quotes from this. And one of them that stood out to me that I wanted to just give a shout out to on here was this one. And especially with what we're seeing kind of in the modern events, what's going on. It says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And yeah. I, you know, like that's another one where I, I think I've heard it before and seen it before, but like, it's just so amazing. It's just such a good quote and it makes you um, realize that like, yeah, we don't get to pick our circumstances, but we need to pick what we're going to do with them and how we're going to respond to what's going on in our lives and what's going on in the wider world around us. And obviously there's a lot going on in the world today. Tolkien was obviously very strongly influenced by World War II. So I imagine that's where he drew a lot of his inspiration, but it's it's a pretty timeless quote. I like it, Josh. So Aragorn, real quickly, and then we can kind of get to some wrapping up things. His character is very different. In the movies, he was always kind of very cool, but he wasn't really this kingly figure until the end when he actually gets the sword in the third book. And it's almost it's almost like he decides, like he's been having this internal conflict the whole time. Like, do I want to be king? Do I want to just be the ranger? Who am I really? And then he kind of, and then he takes the sword and he gets the the ghosts on their side, et cetera. So, I mean, spoilers through the rest of the series, but you know already. But in the book, it seemed like he was already, like he got the sword at the Council of Elrond and he was set up to be the king. He just kind of had to go and claim it. And so it kind of made me wonder, like, what's he been doing this whole time? Like, why aren't you the king already? I was going to say, it reminds me a lot of the warder in, in Wheel of Time. Why am I forgetting his name? Lan. Alan yeah. Mondragorian. <laughs> I skipped sure. it. Yeah, I mean, again, kind of lifted and then kind of expanded that, that character arc in, in Wheel of Time. So one thing I will say, Stephen, is I, I think he was always recognized as the king, but this was kind of differencing th- from him and Boromir. You know, like, it's kind of like he was a king of what, you know, like his whole kingdom, it was more of going out and and defeating the shadow wherever it was. Like, I don't think that there was a real conglomeration and I'm sure that I'm going to get like hammered because this might be off base, but in my head, especially reading this book, it was more like his entire kingdom was more spread out and less like condensed than like Boromir, you know? So you're, you're almost saying like the difference between Boromir is the son of the stewards and like his desire to rule and, and Aragorn was kind of more of this reluctant figure that no, not really reluctant. It's just, he was, he was kind of acting like a King by going out and defeating the shadow wherever he found it. And like going out there and being in the world. And I think he defended himself when Boromir was like, where have you been this entire time? He's like, well, there's not just the, what you're defending. It's like the shadow has gotten a lot more places than that. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he's a true King of men because Boromir is obsessed with Minas Tirith. We must protect Minas Tirith. And we need the ring so we can protect Minas Tirith. And like, dude, shut up about Minas Tirith already. But Aragorn's like, yeah, I've been protecting men wherever they are. Right. Anyway. Okay, I think that's a pretty good handle on some of these hot takes from the Fellowship. I think we might have gotten a little afield into future books. But we're going to close with our, with the top and bottom three characters from the Fellowship. So we're each going to like rattle off quickly who we liked the most or not who we liked the most, but who did the best, like who performed the best for themselves in the book. And then in our next episodes covering the two towers and return of the King, you can look to the end of those episodes to see how our rankings changed over time. So kind of a fun thing to see how characters progressed. So let's go to Josh, Ben, one of you guys want to jump, start us off with your top three and then we'll do bottom three after that. I'll jump. I'll, I'll start us off. Okay, top three or number three. I'll go three, two, one. Number three, I'd say is Bilbo. You know, it wasn't easy for him. That's another thing that we didn't talk about as much, but it wasn't as easy for him to give up the ring as it was kind of presented in the movie. And we did still get a little bit of scenes in the movie that was hard for him. But we really saw in the book how reluctant he was to give it back to Gandalf. But he did it, and he's living out his days. And he's been he's balling with the elves. Number two, I'll give a shout out to. To Elrond, you know, Elrond took all the all these people with con- competing priorities 
and he really got them to come together and said, okay, we need to fulfill this. We need to, we need to put our, our differences, come together, get this ring to get destroyed. And then number one, it's Gandalf for me. You know, he was able to defend the fellowship. He was able to put all these pieces together. I will say, I really liked how you got some behind the scenes look on what he was doing when he wasn't in the Shire. You got a little bit more of that story in Fellowship. Okay, Ben, let's hear yours. Top three, and then we'll cycle back to bottom. Okay, so number three on my top three list is Gandalf. And for the half of the book that he was in, he was freaking awesome. But then he kind of fell off a cliff, if you get my, my meaning. So Sure, okay. We're going to go for the, the third. And then Galadriel, so like the elven queen. I thought, I mean, basically unlimited power in her element. Um, and she was able to give us a deep dive into our hero's mental psyche. And, and we got to get to know him very well through her. And then top one for this book is Tom Bombaville. I'm going to say, I mean, just in terms of raw power, like we talked about earlier, and I, I did this list before we even started recording. So, so I'm going to stick with that in, in terms of just like raw power and his ability to, to pull our intrepid heroes out of all the stuff that they get themselves into in the first, in the first segment of this book. Okay, let me see if I can come up with a more unique top three. So I'm going to go number three, Boromir. And I'm not just saying that. I really was kind of like intrigued more by Boromir in the books because I thought he had a pretty good case. And before he kind of went a field there at the end and tried to take the ring, it really made a lot of sense why he thought that the ring might be helpful. And I am not entirely convinced that they could not have figured out a way to use the ring to help Gondor and then destroy it. It seems like it could have been possible. Steven, so that's, Boromir that's, doesn't get enough love. I agree with you, Stephen, but that's what happened. That's what Isildur. Uh, Isildur. That's exactly Isildur. what he thought he was going to do. That he was going to help his people rebuild and defeat the last remnants of the shadow, and then it corrupted him. But come on, we've got a we've got an eminent threat here. Let's just use use the ring, do a few like blasts of power or whatever, this is and Isildur. defeat the threat, and then throw it. Away. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Okay. Okay. I know, but I, it just seems like Boromir, like maybe we could have figured something out. And I liked Boromir and he's cool. And I feel like Sean Bean shouldn't be killed off as much as he is. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So that's number three. Number two, Gimli, for reasons you guys kind of talked about, I really like the connections that he made. He started forging with the elves. Maybe Gimli Legolas combined. Like they really kind of forged their, their friendship throughout the series. But in this book, it really starts. And I love that. And number one, I don't think I'm going to be able to go away from Samwise Gamgee for number one through <laughs> any of these books. I mean, the dude is just... He didn't do anything, man. He just he just had a weird infatuation with the pony. No, man. He was being set up for great things. He was already steering Frodo towards the paths that he needed to take, and he did not abandon Frodo. His loyalty dude. is very admirable. I'm going Sam every time. He had to be pulled into the boat before drowning. Yeah, because he was willing to give himself up for just the mere chance to help Frodo. It was all a ploy. He was pretending to drown in order for Frodo. He knew Frodo would save him. Can we also talk about how how naive Frodo is that Sam, Mary, and Pippin were all like con- like scheming behind his back to figure out his plan and like he had no idea. Uh-huh. And they all knew right away. They all knew right away and he thought he was being so... Yeah, sneaky. Frodo's useless. Also, not to mention the fact that you choose to take your three best high school friends with you on this journey to destroy this magical power, and you think like that's all you need. I, I mean, who gets all their high school friends together as a band to like record a podcast or something? That's just like seems crazy. Yeah, the podcast that is going to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> all right, those are those are my top three. As we're doing this, I think we should do another episode where we say Lord of the Rings characters. What order of Knights Radiant would they be? I think that would be a fun thing. I'm thinking Elrond Bondsmith right off. I think that would be... Okay, I like it. Anyway, Josh, let's hear your bottom three. Yeah, bottom three. Bottom... Okay, you're going to get triggered, Steven. I'm going to say... Oh, no, is Sam on there? No, 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 Sam's not. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) But I would say Legolas-Gimli combo. Like, I feel like... I feel like... And the movies, I mean, this is because they were so built up and so iconically portrayed in the movies and their fr- friendship was so amazing. But I, I just feel like they didn't really do a whole lot in this book. 
you know, like they were in the fellowship, but they didn't really provide a whole like, oh, Legolas can run on snow. Oh, Gimli, you know, like that's kind of what we got from these original. They were a little gimmicky. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And they were just kind of meant to be placeholders. I feel like in this book, and I, I know it gets better later on, but I feel like in this book, they're just kind of be, meant to be placeholders for elves and dwarves. Number two, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Frodo. Didn't do, didn't do a whole lot for me in this book. In terms of actually being successful and what he was trying to do, he like kind of failed every time and had to be pulled out from every mess he got himself into. And then number one, I'm going to go with Saruman. Like, what a tool, you know? Like, <laughs> seriously, he he's like the leader of these like almost angelic beings and like has so much power. And then he just completely betrays them and goes to the shadow and just is so, I don't know. He was just ticking me off as I was reading these books. I'm like, what a tool. What a tool. That's why you don't get into ring lore. That's what, that's what set him off on the bad path. Good point. All right, Ben, let's hear your bottom three. Okay, bottom three. Boromir. I don't buy his motivations. I don't know. And plus, in the movie, I was actually scared that he was going to hurt Frodo. In the book, I was just like, he's just mad right now. He didn't really like... I never felt like Frodo's life was in danger or anything. Come on, he redeemed himself so quickly because the only reason he died was because he was trying to save Merry and Pippin. Okay, that's not in this book. Yeah, true. That's beginning of next book. Okay. Okay. Loophole. Okay. Not a loophole. This is the bottom of top three for this book, Stephen. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. All right. Number two is Gollum. Again, in this book, the dude was just like a log floating in the water or footsteps on the horizon or something, you know? Like, I mean, it was yeah. cool that we got some of his lore, but we didn't really get Gollum in this book. Uh, pause right here. What did you guys think about the decision in the movies to wait until the third movie to reveal Gollum's backstory? Versus here. I, I liked the way that the movies did a lot of the backstories. I thought there was too much info dump in this first book. And first, I mean, the, the movies did a similar thing where the opening little mantra there was the voiceover, was the voiceover from Gladriel, and then the whole sequence with the Isildur and, and that backstory. But I don't know. I, I thought it went on a little long. I thought we were at the Shire for too long. Yeah. But, but just in terms of giving you the story of Gollum originally and you know in the very first book versus waiting i don't know oh. i i kind of liked having Gollum humanized a little bit more at the beginning of the series in the books than maybe not maybe the way it was done with the info dump was a little bit much but i liked having being able to picture him as being a little bit more human but if you get it later on then you can look back and think like wow this guy that i had these opinions on was actually a, a hobbit at one point and so that kind of twist your perceptions a little bit i I like that a little more in general also don't we just assume that people have read the hobbit and kind of know who Gollum is at this point well you you wouldn't know that he was once i mean it's not hard to figure out right but like the whole story with him and deagle and how he got the ring in the first place is not until the third movie or the first book okay fair enough and then my bottom of the bottom three is going to be frodo Again, just because... Hate on Frodo, you guys. <laughs> dude, I don't know. He's like, if you watch a great football play and you're like, you know, somebody did a Hail Mary, you don't like give props to the actual football. You give props to everybody around him, you know? And to That's me, what I was Frodo saying actually, earlier, though. Frodo is such a passive character at the beginning, but by the end, he's the one throwing the football. Again, Stephen, this is this... I, well, not in this book, even. I don't know. At the very end, maybe, when he decides, when he gets freaked out by a big, giant man, and decides to well, yes, run that's, away in a that's boat. the critical moment when he shows some courage and gumption. Maybe, okay, maybe right. we can decide that uh, Frodo is the deflated football. That's easier. Okay, easier to, okay. Easier to catch. Shout out Tom Brady. <laughs> I don't know, man. He just didn't do didn't do much for me. And the fact that he was the person I had to follow around throughout this whole journey kind of ticked me off towards him the whole time, too. So. He was like the Ron of the series for me. If if we had to deal with Ron being the primary viewpoint character, well, yikes! Okay, that that's rough there. That's harsh. Dude. My my bottom three. I'm gonna say number three. Unfortunately, is going to be Aragorn Strider. Mm, gonna Ooh. be an unpopular choice. Yeah, but Ooh. the reason is I just was a little disconnected from him. Like, what is this guy actually? What is it? Whatever his motivations. I felt like maybe he's kind of a leader but isn't really step up till gandalf is gone 
I don't know. I was just, I was just hoping for a little bit more out of Aragorn. I felt like he was maybe two hands off when he really should have been leading the whole time. And there was this whole story where he captured Gollum along with Gandalf. So he clearly knew what was going on before, but he didn't step in till the very end. Why does he have to be so mysterious? Why can't he just help the hobbits straight off? I mean, I know he drives off the ring wraiths kind of, but yeah, I, I was just looking for a little more, especially with the movies fresh in my mind, how great uh, Aragorn is there. He gets better in future books. So he has a, he has a really good plot arc. And this book didn't quite do it for me. Number two was a character we haven't talked at all. This character is Arwen. She's a very minor character in the books. She's a bigger character in the movies. I think maybe partly because they wanted more of a love story going on. But I liked how they did that in the movies. I liked that they had a female character taking on a more prominent role. And I thought there was an opportunity for that in this in this first book. And it was missed. Like the fact that Elrond was the one that Steven, really kind of saved them. You just think she's pretty in the movies. I'm forgetting that because his name. Come on. Yeah, Liv Tyler. She was pretty. Tyler, but yes. Um, yeah, come on. I, I wanted more. And there, there wasn't really much of a, of a of a female presence throughout the books other than Gladiol. And number one, the, the bottom character for me was Sauron. Josh, you kind of had a similar criticism by naming Saruman number one. But look, Sauron, get your ring race together. Can <laughs> we not like focus in on this ring a little bit sooner? It seems like everyone has been able to figure out, okay, Gollum had the ring. He had it the whole time. Here it is in the Shire. Why don't you know the map of Middle Earth if you are the most, <laughs> you know, one of the most powerful, like, Shire? <laughs> yeah, like, I've never heard of this before. I've been around for millennia, but what is this place? I mean, I know it's far away, but come Your on. One superpower is to have a big eyeball and you can't see the Shire. So I know. So, yeah, I think I might amend mine to be special shout out to the ring rates for being the worst characters. Like, they can't go take down a few hobbits. Yeah. Okay, wait, yeah, wait. So let's, let's all amend our top three. I'm, I'm proposing this. To the innkeeper of the Prancing Pony, Barlam, Barlaman Butterbur, who did not deliver the letter that he was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. you're saying bottom three. Yeah. Bottom three. Oh, yeah. This guy, I mean, he, he had one job. And then that, that made Frodo freak out for 75% of the book about where the heck Gandalf was supposed to be. That was disappointing. Yeah. Shout out to inns and innkeepers. Obviously, another huge trope throughout Wheel of Time that started right here at the Prancing Pony. Who's the name of the character that went and tipped off the ring wraiths, though? That was pretty messed up. Oh, yeah. Oh, Did yeah. that guy have a name? Discord that. A wicked a wicked man, maybe. Yeah, that was pretty messed up. So along with the ring wraiths thing, one of my favorite memes that I've seen along Lord of the... There's lots. There's lots of memes and gifs about Lord of the Rings. It's like a whole subculture of fantasy. But one of my favorites is the one that says, like, biggest choke job in Middle Earth history. And it's got the picture of all the ring wraiths surrounding the, the helpless hobbits at the top of Weathertop. Like, how did they not close the deal? <laughs> Wait, also, biggest L taken is when Frodo is dancing and slips the ring on at the end. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah, like, somehow he manages I, to I do say, that. I will say that, like, the, the hobbits did kind of have, like, some backing that they didn't know about, like with the, the river ru rising up, like they, they had some people getting their backs. That was an unforced error on freaking Frodo's part. Like all he had to do was keep that ring off of his finger. And he's like, Oh, it's like, I want it to go on. I don't care for it, man. Keep that away from your finger. Dude. The hobbits are all about dancing and breakfast. Yeah, and apparently putting their finger in rings. <laughs> no, no business being in. And songs. I forgot. Shout out songs. My favorites. Hobbits cannot get enough of those. <laughs> One other shout out to like my subculture of Lord of the Rings content was if you haven't seen this, look up Lord of the Rings with lightsabers. It's the Minds of Moria scene where they all have lightsabers instead of traditional weapons. And it's fantastic. I don't, the guy who edited it together did an amazing job. He's got the via, he's got the sound effects going. It's fantastic. It just totally blew my mind and I could not look away from it. I've probably watched it like three or four times. I mean, I've known about it for a while, but I rewatched it after. <laughs> after listening to this part of the book. <laughs> All right. So I think that's a pretty good top three or bottom three, Steven. Yeah. yeah. It's been a few minutes. I don't even remember what my bottom three were. Sauron. He was Sauron. bad. Sauron. Big bad. Yeah. They, it seems like they could have pulled this together a little bit better with taking the ring down before it got to. Yeah. You would have to have a competition between who is worse, the ring widths or the forsaken and, and their ability to cause trouble for people that don't know what they're doing at all. 
the Forsaken, at least you get the sense that there's like infighting between them. They're all trying to seize the power individually. And that's a lot. That's a lot of the reason why things unravel the way they do. But the ring race appear to just be like pure servants of Sauron. To, okay. Let's... To be fair, to be fair to the ring race, they did get a couple of kill shots because at first um, Frodo should have died, but he was, oh, what protected him the first time he got stabbed? He did get stabbed, but they were able to save him in Rivendell. Yeah, but something I don't know. If You're thinking just... about the Mines of Moria when the cave troll. I don't remember yeah. if it was a cave troll in the books yeah. or not, but like Foley ran him through, and they all thought he was dead. And then he's like, "No, JK, I've got the mithril armor yeah. on, and there's more to this hobbit that meets the eye." Also, also seen in Mines of Moria with lightsabers. <laughs> Did the lightsaber go through him in that? I haven't watched it. Did they get uh, I don't know if it goes all the way through or not. I definitely like stabs right into him, and so he goes. This... Ugh. Is this headcanon now that uh, that Mithril can defeat lightsabers? Yeah, I think so. Based okay. off YouTube. Based off YouTube. <laughs> nice. All right. All right. So we are going to follow up with our top and bottom three for Two Towers and Return of the King. Thanks, guys, for being on with me. Look, listeners, we made a lot of mistakes here. Jump on Discord. <laughs> tell us tell us all the Legendarium stuff that we don't understand. We're trying our best, but we are just simple men reading through the, the, the original trilogy and haven't really explored too much into the into the other books so please be gentle but please do hop on discord and talk with us um, look us up on social media participate in our monthly polls on twitter those are a lot of fun and maybe consider supporting in other ways as well if you so desire so ben josh i will see you guys next time thanks Steve.